Good morning. We have a piece of an extensive exhortation from Paul in Galatians chapters 5:26 through 6:2. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. God's word for us this morning. Good morning. Well, as well, would you join me in prayer as we beseech our God and ask for him to help us in understanding his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are absolutely grateful. We recognize the fact that you are sovereign, your creator, your sustainer, your provider. Father, you are holy. You're completely unlike anything we could ever imagine or think of. You're absolutely righteous and pure. And in all of that, you are mindful of us. You care for us. You delight in us. You eagerly listen to our cries. You listen to our prayers. Father, we have nothing but gratitude to offer to you. The scriptures are very clear that even if we had all of the cedars and all of the wood of Lebanon, it would not be enough. If we had all of the things of this earth, it would not be enough. For you are worthy of so much more than we could ever give. And that just continues to emphasize how much we live by grace. And Lord, it's tempting for us to take advantage of that grace or to obscure that grace. We'd ask you, Lord, to protect us from doing so. But instead, we would exemplify that grace. We would rejoice in that grace, that we would live out that grace in the way that we live with one another. That we would be a community of indwelt by the Spirit believers who embody your grace in the way that we bear one another's burdens. And in particular, that we bear the burden of each other's sins. And that we learn how to be spiritual people who walk by the Spirit to restore those who are caught in sin with gentleness and with humility so that they might be restored, that they might enjoy the life of walking by the Spirit and not carrying out the deeds of the flesh. We thank you and we praise you for putting us together. It is by grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these last few weeks have certainly been a, a tremendous reminder to us that suffering is a part of life. 
It is an unnatural part of life, for that is not how God created things. But we live in a tension between Galatians or Genesis 3 and the fall and that of the hope of Revelation 21. As we think about Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, listen to what John says. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our eternal hope. And we live in the in-between times of Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. I had the wonderful privilege of being able to teach a class at a seminary in Beirut, Lebanon a few weeks ago. And in this class, we're we're church leaders and pastors of Christian churches in both Syria and Lebanon. There was one man in particular that when we got to the topic, the class was on theology and counseling and just how our theology should inform and shape the way that we counsel one another. And one of the men made certain to comment when we began to address the issue of eschatology and the end times, and in particular we looked at Revelation 21. He was a man who lived in Damascus at the time, but he was actually from northern Syria. But his places of business, he had had two places of businesses that had been bombed, had lost family members as a result, and was now had just built his third place where he had his business and his livelihood in Damascus. And in working in the church there and the many different issues that they face on a regular basis, he said, this is our hope. We talk about this more than anything else. And I began to realize they were living out and embodying what Paul said to the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these things. These things being the end times, the time when Christ will redeem us, will restore, will recreate. But in the meantime, we live in what Paul describes as our present condition in Romans 8. In Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. See, all of creation is eagerly anticipating restoration and recreation. And when he says and uses that word, waits eagerly, it's the idea, if you will, especially with the holidays coming along, many of you who are are grandparents are going to be visiting your grandchildren. Some of you are grandchildren and, and are going to be visited by your grandparents, and some of you have little kids, and you know the excitement that your kids right now are already talking about the fact that their grandparents are going to be coming 
And so that day when they were, of their arrival, the children typically loved to, to be pressed up, if you will, against the window. If you could think about that young baby child pressed up against the window, the nose is squished on the window, they're on their tippy toes because they're in longing anticipation for the arrival and the visit of their grandparents. And that's what Paul is capturing in this word is that all of creation is on their tippy toes with their nose pressed against the window, eagerly awaiting restoration and recreation, the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is pressed up and waiting. When Christ is revealed and believers are revealed with Him in glory, there will be an eternal separation from sin and the suffering that comes as a result of that. And just as creation suffered because of the sin of man, so too will it benefit from our redemption. Verse 20, he goes on to say, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And so not only is creation waiting with eager expectation for the return of Christ and recreation, but as well in the meantime, creation itself is groaning, Paul says. And that word for groan, it refers to the utterances of someone who is caught in a dreadful situation and has no immediate prospect of deliverance. And he goes on to say, not only the creation, but he says, we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. So not only is creation groaning in desperation and waiting on their tippy toes with nose pressed against the window with eager anticipation, but so are we. We eagerly Await, Lord Jesus, come. Come now, Lord Jesus. And it's in this hope that we were saved, Paul says. And he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. With patience. With patience, we endure suffering. We endure trial. We endure pain. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the hope that we have, we have the hope of our eternity that is spoken of in Revelation 21. We have the hope of the comfort and the companionship and the strength of the God's Spirit. We are never alone, and it will come to an end. And it is in this context then that we have this familiar passage. Romans 8, 27, 28. He who searches the hearts, he knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt there are no wasted events. There's no wasted tragedy there's no wasted conflict. There's no wasted moment in our day. 
For our sovereign, loving, and caring God sees fit that all things work together for our good. But then what is that good? See, for the believer, the ultimate good is that I might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so then, it is in that that I find my comfort. Because I want to be more like Jesus Christ. And then I'm given this confidence that God works all things together for that end. But we know that there are no wasted events. We know that God is with us. We know that we're never alone. We know that we have companionship and strength through Him. But we also know that there are various reasons for suffering. There is what we might call innocent suffering or the suffering of mystery. Suffering for what appears to us as some unknown reason. And the book of Job is an incredible example of that. And we do recognize that his friends argue incessantly that Job must have sinned to deserve this suffering because there is a false theology that says that if you are right with God, then you are guaranteed a life of safety and security and of comfort and of happiness and that all things will go well according to your plans. And, and, and that's the premise of theology that Job's counselors are coming to him with. And, and so they have to believe that because Job is going through what he is going through, he must, must have sinned. And yet God himself says, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. There are times when we will suffer mysteriously. But the fact that we belong in a sin-cursed world, we are in an in-between state. We're in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. And in that moment, as Paul describes, creation and we ourselves are groaning under the pressure of suffering. And we eagerly anticipate the recreation of the new heaven and new earth. Sometimes there is a suffering for righteousness' sake. Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, talks about the fact that Paul was stoned, he was whipped, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was threatened, he was slandered, he was deserted by friends, he suffered poverty, all because of his efforts to proclaim the gospel, to spread the gospel, and to plant churches. And then we also have the suffering to display the glory of God. We see that exemplified in John 9, the blind man. See, once again, we, we see this theology, this, this concept that people only suffer because they must have done something against the Lord. And even his disciples, Jesus' disciples thought that way. As they passed by, they saw a blind man and that he was born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it him? Which seems a little weird if he was born blind, but is it him? He complains about the womb. I don't know. Or was it his parents? Who sinned, Lord, that this man would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned, or was it his parents? But 
he says, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That was the intended purpose. And this worked out for this man's good, not merely for physical sight, but later in John 9, we see that he, his eyes were also open for spiritual sight. And he came to recognize himself as a sinner. He became to recognize himself not merely blind physically, but blind spiritually, and that he was in need of a Savior. He was in need of this man, the one who caused him to see for once, caused him to see for eternity. For he recognized Jesus Christ as the true Savior, and he embraced him and followed him. As well, God used this in the religious leaders' lives to condemn them for their unbelief. And so he used this moment, this situation with this man, the suffering that this man had endured for a lifetime, he used it to bring life to one and reveal the sad condition of others. But there is also suffering as a result of our own sin. Psalm 107, 17 says it real clear. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And we see this replete throughout Scripture. And Israel was disciplined 40 years in the desert. For what? Their own sin. David, after his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, his child that he conceived with Bathsheba died. And then his family unravels. All of this is predicted beforehand by the prophet Nathan. Ananias and Sapphira, the Lord strikes them dead after they lied to make themselves look more generous than they really were. Judas Iscariot, he suffered the guilt of his sin and took his own life. Paul reaffirms this principle in 2 Corinthians 7, but he also clearly displays his heart behind it and resonates then with the heart of God behind suffering that might be as a result of our own sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, referring to the first letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. Okay, Paul, what are you saying? And the point of what Paul is saying is that he says, I, I regret the uncomfortableness, I regret the pain, and I regret the sorrow that was caused by this letter. But then again, I do not regret it because he, see it, he says in verse 8, I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, but as it is, he says, I rejoice. Now he clarifies, not because you were grieved, so there's genuine sensitivity for the person who is suffering, but, he says, because you were grieved into repenting. He rejoiced because of what that suffering produced. And in that, he rejoiced. Why? Because it was far better than anything else. It was far better than the removal of the pain. It was far better than the removal of the discomfort. What was far better was the fact that you repented, that you were restored, that you came into right relation with your God and with one another. And that, my brothers and sisters, is more valuable than anything else. That's what Paul is saying. 
He goes on to say that you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. See, there's a great deal or far more that we lose when as we suffer as a result of our sin, if there's no restoration that takes place, if there's no confession of sin, if there's no repentance from that sin, a turning away, there's a greater loss. It's a familial, relational loss that we then have with our God. It is a loss that is reflective of what took place in Genesis 3. It is the greatest tragedy of humanity, Galatians 3 is. For they were with God and God was with them and they enjoyed incredible fellowship with one another. But when they violated that, God came on the scene for the very first time they were afraid of him. And for the very first time they hid from him. For the very first time there was a relational riff between God and those created in his image. And that, the relationship we have with him, is of far greater value. And, and that's at the heart of what Paul is saying. We also know that God has a purpose with our suffering, and that should give us comfort. We know that he's so, sovereign over all trials and sufferings. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says it clearly, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. See, God was sovereign over Jesus' sufferings. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was sovereign over Job's sufferings. He, was, he is sovereign over the sufferings of all Christians. In his sovereignty and faithfulness, he will never allow any trial or suffering to be more than we can bear independence on him. That's the wonderful truth we get in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you. There's nothing that you're facing that is beyond your ability in Christ. Because God is faithful, which depends on his sovereignty, for him to be faithful to orchestrate events in such a way that they would not be too much for you to handle independence on God. And he is faithful. To that end. And he has many purposes for trials and suffering. He uses suffering to glorify himself. We saw that in John 9. He uses suffering to instruct us to bear the fruit of righteousness. We saw that last week in Hebrews 12. He uses suffering to test and purify our faith. He uses suffering to conform believers to the image of Jesus. We saw that in Romans 8. He uses suffering to make us useful in ministry to others. He uses suffering to teach us to rely on him. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, we don't want you to be unaware, Paul says to the brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make the purpose us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And what Paul is saying is I find comfort in my affliction because I desire relying on him more than myself. That's the only way I find that comfort. If, if my, my comfort is only found in the fact that I want what that produces. 
God uses suffering to wean us off this world, to create in us a longing for the new creation. He uses suffering to reveal our heart. He uses suffering to produce perseverance and godly character. Consider what James says about trials. Boy, this passage has tripped many of us up, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What what is James teaching? Is he teaching a creed of Christian masochism? I mean, that's what it is. Christians need to love pain, to love suffering, so much so that they count it all joy. Is James saying that we should be people of, uh, who buy into a creed of fakery? That when we're in pain and when we're suffering and people come up to you and they ask you, how are you doing? They know your pain. They know you're in suffering. And then you say something like, I'm doing good. Right? <laughs> and we're just supposed to go around and be fake and disingenuous? No. Listen to what James says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. So whenever you see that, he's relying on the fact that you believers know what I'm about ready to tell you. You know this truth. In other words, you know one of the purposes behind the trials, behind the suffering in your life. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The joy is not connected to the suffering and the pain and the trial. The joy is connected to what it produces. In other words, if I want what it produces, then I can consider my trials and suffering with joy. The joy is connected to what it produces. And joy is connected to the desire of my heart. All these great truths are meant to help us think rightly about our suffering and pain. However, the comfort of knowing his purposes depends on our agreement to those purposes. See, once again, the joy that James refers to is not a creed for Christian masochism. But instead, it's a revelation and a reminder that we can consider it all joy because through trial and through suffering and through pain produces an incredible characteristic called steadfastness which is absolutely essential to becoming more like Jesus Christ. And what James is assuming is that that is the heartbeat of the Christian reader. That's then why he can say to consider it and count it joy. It's dependent on our desire being aligned with God's purposes. Do we want what he wants? Steadfastness, perfect and complete in Christ. And so we know that in our sufferings we're never alone and that they will indeed come to an end. We know that there are no wasted events, no wasted tragedies or sufferings. We know that as we saw in Hebrews 12, that the one who is sovereign over them all is our loving Father and that none of these sufferings separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
And behind every bit of suffering, every pain, every tear, every cry of the heart is a good God who is always up to something good. And so we also understand that God is with us and that God cares for us. Scripture is replete with the disposition that God has toward those who are suffering and even those who are suffering as a result of their own sin. I will confess that truth was a very difficult truth for me to understand. I had always been taught, if you make your bed, lie in it, right? And the idea of going before God, knowing that I was suffering as a result of my own sin, was a foreign concept to me. I thought, why would God have anything to do with me? I'm going through what I'm going through right now as a result of my own stupidity, as a result of my own foolishness. Why would I bother God with that? And in that, I learned the mercy of God. And I learned that God walks through us through all suffering and all pain, even that which is as a result of my sin. Wow. What a loving Father we have. And so the psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. I know I've shared this with you before, but I want to remind you of the disposition our God in heaven has toward you when you are crying out to him in the midst of suffering and pain, the Hebrew makes it very clear, wants to paint a picture of God's disposition toward us when he talks about the fact that he inclines his ear or he inclines his heart to us. Remember, it's the idea of him cupping his ears and leaning forward. You know that when you are crying out to your God in the pain of your suffering by whatever reason it might be, for whatever purpose that it might be, that you can cry out to Him and know full well that His disposition toward you is that of one cupping His ears and leaning in to listen to and to care for everything you have to say. That's our loving Father. And in God's sovereign caring plan, He indwells us with His Spirit that we might enjoy fellowship in His body, the church. Part of God's comfort and care is to sovereignly use the church to then bear one another's burdens, and in particular, the burden of our own sin. And we see that in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, Paul was concerned for the Galatian church. False teachers were greatly influencing the Galatian Christians. They were teaching a gospel that was no gospel at all. 
They were teaching a form of works righteousness. The, the Galatians, they weren't true believers, they said, unless they were circumcised. And that was not a gospel of grace. It was a gospel of legalism, which is no gospel at all. And that is the teaching that says you must do this, you must perform that in order to be saved. And Paul reemphasizes the grace of the gospel throughout Galatians in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and then even in chapter 5 he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. And then he says to them this then, stand firm in the gospel of grace and submit no longer to a yoke of slavery. But then he goes on to expound the implications of this gospel of grace. And one of the implications is that we love one another. In Galatians 5, 13 and 14, it says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We walk by the Spirit rather than living by the impulses and desires of our flesh. Paul says that in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. He says, I walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh, they're against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit, they're against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so as a result, we humble ourselves before one another in order that we might bear one another's burdens. See, the community of Christ that is walking by the Spirit walks with one another in humility and gentleness, willing to bear the burdens of one another, and in particular, one another's sins. And that's why he says at the close of chapter 5, if we then live by the Spirit, then we have to keep in step with the Spirit, keep in line with Him. Let us not become conceited then, provoking one another and envying one another, because the greatest roadblock to humbly reaching down and picking up the person that's caught in a sin is our pride. See, those who are caught in a trespass, they're in need of restoration. The word for trespass or transgression, that person who's caught in that sin, they deserve help and encouragement as well as rebuke. That caught may imply that the person was actually seen committing the sin, indicating there's no doubt about their guilt. But the word also allows for the idea of the person being entrapped by the sin itself. Very characteristic of of those, what we would describe having an addiction. Biblically, that would be somebody with a life-dominating sin. But it's a sin that they so easily get entangled in that it has a grip on them. A grip on them to such an extent that the thought of not doing it anymore is the equivalent of asking them to stop breathing. That's how much it has gripped them. And they're caught. What do they need? They need restoration. From who? The spiritual. Who's the spiritual? The Navy SEALs of the Christian church? The spiritual elite? The leaders? The pastors? Those who are specifically trained and qualified to do so? The professionals? Is that the spiritual? 
Absolutely not. In the context, Galatians 6, when he says brothers, he's referring to all believers. Then he breaks us down into two categories, the spiritual and the caught in the trespass. If you're not in a caught in a trespass, then you're the spiritual. Therefore, those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are walking by the Spirit, are the spiritual. We all have a responsibility to one another to help pick up our brother and sister who's caught in trespass. And the biggest roadblock to doing that is what Paul identifies as pride. Because he says then, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And remember in verse 26, just before that, he said, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Each of us have sensed a bit of pride at times well up in our lives in a few different ways when we see someone caught in a trespass. We may envy the person to such an extent that when they get caught in a trespass, there's this little bit of satisfaction that they've been brought down a few notches. We may look at that, partic- that person's particular sin and just say, you know what, that's not something I want to mess with. And there's just that pride that breeds indifference. Or we might say, that sin is so repulsive, it is so disgusting, I would never do anything like that ever in my life, and therefore I'm not going to get involved. I I don't even want to touch it. I don't even want to get close to it. Those are just a few of the different ways in which our, our pride can get in the way of that willingness to humble ourselves, to reach out to a brother who's caught and pick them up. And the fact that they're caught, it it may entail more than just one time. It may entail a long time of walking side by side with them. And we may have to pick them up many times. And what Paul is saying is that the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, walking by the Spirit community of Christ manifest the grace of Christ in their willingness to humble themselves and bear each other's burden, and in particular, the burden of one's sin. Now, does that mean that each of us then who are spiritual go around looking for sin in people's lives? No. Charles Spurgeon tells this story about John Wesley. He says, there's a story of John Wesley going several times to a certain town where he thought there was a band of earnest Christian people. But he was met by a brother who told him how dead they all were, what little life there was in their meetings for prayer, and how much inconsistency there was among them. When he got there, he did not notice anything of this. So the third time he went, he said to his brother, how is it that you always meet me and tell me these things about the brothers? Nobody else ever seems to say it. Well, you see, the man said, Mr. Wesley, I have a rare gift. 
I have a rare gift of discerning spirits. Oh, said Wesley, then wrap that talent up in a napkin and bury it. You will have done the best thing possible with it. The Lord will never ask you what you have done with it if you will only keep it to yourself. The spiritual person restores a fallen believer with gentleness and humility. We help the fallen believer recognize his sin as sin. We help them to admit their sin and to confess their sin to the Lord. And then we encourage them to turn away from it in repentance, sincerely seeking God's forgiveness. And in that, then, we have picked up our brother who is caught, our sister who is caught, and we've helped restore them to a right relationship with the Lord, which, as we have seen, is of tremendous value. And the spiritual person who bears the burdens of others exemplifies and accomplishes the purpose of Christ. He says, bear one another bur another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens is the way of Christ who came not to be served but to serve to give His life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. The prophet Isaiah says, surely He has borne our griefs, He's carried our sorrows, He's pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the supreme burden bearer. Let me close with a few questions for us to consider. Are we sensitive to the sin of others and are we ready to restore them when needed? Are we gentle? Are we humble? Or do we look at certain sins as so bad we'd rather stay away? Do we see other people's sins as repulsive compared to our own? Are we ready and willing to bear another sin for the long haul? Are you caught? If you are caught, look for a spiritual friend. Look for a spiritual friend. Do you know someone who is caught? Then reach down and pick them up for the glory of God and the restoration of their soul. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to You that You would give us this ministry. We're grateful that if we are ever to be caught in a sin, that You have put people, You've put Your church in place that we might be restored. Father, thank You as well that if we are aware of those who might be caught in a trespass, that You have given us all the resources necessary that no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, spiritual is not a state that is earned or gained by a period of time. It is not a state of particular maturity. 
but it is an objective state of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so no matter what maturity level we are, you, with your sufficient resources, will most indeed use us to help restore one who has fallen. Father, we ask that You would help us to embrace one another, to embrace the responsibility of caring for one another in this way. That we would be Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled, walking-by-the-Spirit community that bears the burdens of one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.